Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. this 13th day of May. It is Ascension Day. This is the 40th day following Easter. Actually, 39 days after Easter Sunday, if you're, you know, gonna test me and count. Um, Ascension Day is a Christian holiday. It is a holy day. It is a day we set apart. It commemorates the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And so let's read Acts chapter 1 the first 11 verses. Remember, this is Luke writing, and so you have um, a reference here to the first book, which you and I have received as the Gospel of Luke. So Acts 1 starts this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, which is friend of God, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise uh, of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they, uh, when they had come together, so this is, you know, following those 40 days, so this was today, Ascension Day, they asked him, Lord, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went away, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Um, Today is the day we celebrate the bodily ascension of the resurrected Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and yes, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Ascension Day is actually one of the earliest Christian festivals. It dates back to uh, the year 68 AD, according to the New Testament, as we have just read. um, Jesus appeared to his disciples uh, many, many times, Um, actually to hundreds of people following his resurrection during these 40 days, and uh, and then ascended into heaven. Uh, So Ascension Day marks the end of the season of Easter and obviously occurs 10 days before Pentecost. And so Pentecost is um, soon to be upon us. Ascension Day is actually a federal public holiday in lots of places um, around the world. Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Indonesia, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, um, Vanuatu, 
Uh, it is not a, an official holiday in uh, most of the places uh, where people are listening right now, North America, uh, notably, uh, but also Australia or the United Kingdom. Um, not a public holiday in, in those countries, but a public holiday in many places around the world. And so let us consider setting it apart as holy unto God. Next up, I've got Ben Johnson. He and I are going to survey several of the headlines across um, across the country and around the world today. We're going to lead off with Liz Cheney, a, a Wyoming uh, representative um, who, um, well, had quite a day yesterday. We'll be right back. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Our friend Pastor Ben Johnson joins us again today. He is now a media reporter for the Daily Wire. You can find what he's writing at dailywire.com. He also tweets at the rights writer. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. So uh, Liz Cheney has been representing her Wyoming congressional district in the House of Representatives since 2017. She's also been serving as the House Republican Conference Chair, which I'll just confess to you, prior to this kerfluffle, most people across the United States of America had no idea that the Republican Party even had a conference chair, nor that it's the highest uh, ranking position in House Republican leadership, nor do they care. Mostly what people knew about Liz Cheney is that she's the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney um, and maybe one of the best known young Republican women in Washington. What is uh, going on with uh, with the ouster of Liz Cheney from House leadership? Yeah, Liz Cheney has been outspoken uh, against uh, former President Trump and uh, about the idea of the election being stolen. But she's also made some statements uh, that uh, have, have troubled a lot of her colleagues. Uh, there was a previous vote about uh, her continuing in that position, third most important in the House after the uh, Speaker and the Whip, or the Minority Leader and the Whip in this case. And uh, so uh, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and then right behind that, Liz Cheney had a very bright future, you know, from a, a obviously well-connected political family. But uh, as it turns out, you know, she, she uh, had voted for impeachment some members of the House wanted to uh, get her out of leadership at that time, but she survived by a pretty good-sized margin, and Kevin McCarthy backed her up. Several prominent Republicans did. But instead of uh, then pivoting and coalescing with them, taking on the Biden administration, she continued to focus on President Trump. And, and uh, so there was a voice vote yesterday, and she was removed from her leadership position. Now, as you said, most people would not care about the fact that uh, this this leadership position had changed hands or even know that it existed until very recently, uh, except for the fact that she's become a media darling. And uh, because of that, she's been elevated uh, to uh, a status of incredible importance. The media have said that this signals the civil war in the Republican Party, which has been going on actually long before Liz Cheney even went into Washington. But uh, her removal from this position 
has been elevated and magnified, I think, probably more than what it deserves. Uh, Amanda Marcotti, who is a name that would be known to a lot of uh, people who watch the news very closely from a pro-life perspective, she's probably the most pro-abortion writer in the entire country, and that's some heavy ground out there. Uh, Amanda Marcotti, who was fired from the John Edwards campaign for anti-Christian statements that she made in 2007 and refused to retract, uh, said that this is proof that uh, the Republicans are coalescing around a strategy to uh, make sure that the next coup succeeds uh, after uh, if, if they lose the White House in four years uh, and that they're removing anyone who would stand in the way of violence. So I, I think that's an overstatement, uh, to say the least. Uh, really, what was happening here was that uh, uh, Cheney, as you said, had a very bright future, very uh, well intended, very uh, well connected political family. But nonetheless, uh, she she simply wouldn't move forward with uh, an agenda that focused on trying to stop legislation from the other side and was seen as a divisive figure. I think we're going to hear today that um, there are, there is a group of people who are officially launching a third party. They will be uh, former Republican officials from, I think, largely the Bush administration. So that's going to be something to watch for. Um, not sure how a third party would fare and exactly who that would empower. Um, the Democrats are divided uh, at this point as well. Lots of lots of infighting on their side of the aisle. I just think that, you know, Ben, one of the things we have to be mindful of is that no matter what system of government we're in, Christians are going to experience um, some distance from whatever is going on in, in a political system because the system's not designed to, to function in a way that um, that reduces division, but oftentimes just exacerbates it. And so I think that as Christians, we need to be mindful of that. Um, we need to be mindful that we are people of faith and first, like, right, we're Christians first in these conversations with one another and about what's going on in the country. Most definitely. And we're, we're called to be repairers of the breach in our own private capacity to the greatest extent that we can uh, paper over these differences and you know, truly bring people together and see our unity in Christ that's uh, most important for our, our personal capacity. When it comes to policy issues, which we discuss on the air all the time, of course, we would look at issues like uh, our ability to, to worship openly and freely, particularly during times of pandemic where church has been closed, and uh, issues like the right to life and the right to live our faith in the public square. So those, those are the things that we focus on as policy issues. But then, of course, we see and affirm the humanity of everybody, including our opponents, uh, no matter how divisive and... and uh, a potentially a politicized and polarized our society may become. Amen. All right, uh, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I am going to um, uh, to tee up a media question for Ben. Um, the New York Times has raised concern about the CDC's mis misleading representation of COVID transmission numbers outdoors, and it just sort of leads us into a larger conversation um, about how things could be both true and yet deceptive. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is a new Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson, uh, he is a media reporter at DailyWire.com. Um, ben, let's talk about this New York Times uh, piece, and then let's pivot to let's use it as a uh, as a segue into a conversation about how what we're reading can often be both true and yet deceptive. Well, the New York Times has found just such an example when it comes to the CDC. 
Uh, on uh, April 27th, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, held a conference where she was unveiling the most recent guidance about wearing masks outdoors. And she said, of course, that if you're wearing, uh, if you're fully vaccinated, uh, but you're involved in something that involves a lot of people or there's a lot of physical activity, you still have to wear a mask. So you've seen videos of children collapsing because they're playing soccer, for example, outdoors. Or this summer, if they go to summer camp, children are supposed to wear masks, according to the CDC guidance. Uh, and one of the comments you made was less than 10 percent of transmission takes place outdoors. Now, the New York Times found uh, it's actually much less than 10 percent. It's perhaps one tenth of one percent, which is to say uh, you know, about 10,000 percent less than what was advertised. It could be one percent, could be 0.1 percent, so 100 or 1,000 times less uh, you know, uh, than what was advertised. The error came about because there was a, a meta-analysis that was published in a peer-reviewed journal, and uh, the underlying data showed that actually every every issue that they were counting as an outdoor transmission happened at a construction site in Singapore. And it, as it turns out, actually they spent part of their time together indoors, and it was probably while they were indoors that the transmission occurred, not while they were outdoors. Every other study places it about 0.1% to 1% most. So it's true, uh, the New York Times points out, that yes, it's less than 10%, you know, in the same sense, for example, that less than 50 people had scaled Mount Everest before Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, in, in the same sense that uh, uh, you know, there are less than 20,000 people a year who are killed by sharks. Uh, it's actually about 150 people. You know, so all of these things are true. It's just that the way that they're worded is deceptive because it, it, it seems to inflate the numbers and make it more dangerous. And then you've got a CDC guidance telling people how to live their lives, telling them not to wear, uh, rather that they cannot, um, they cannot refuse to wear masks if they're in public, even if they're children, which have a, a lower rate of transmission in the first place when they're outdoors. It's virtually impossible, uh, as uh, Joe Scarborough said the other morning, it's almost impossible to get this outdoors, uh, according to the CDC's data. And yet that data didn't inform uh, the guidance that came out. And so uh, Walensky has been asked about this. There, there are indications we're going to get a new guidance coming out possibly as early as today. So keep your eyes peeled for that because they were called out by the New York Times, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC. These aren't typical critics of the administration. So uh, you realize things have uh, have really come unraveled. Okay, I want to talk about what's going on uh, at the school board level in Dairyfield, New Hampshire. Now, the only reason that anyone knows who's on the school board in Dairyfield, New Hampshire, or cares uh, about this story, is that a, uh, uh, I don't know, comedian? I guess that's what we call Sarah Silverman. Um, Sarah Silverman has a podcast, and last week she declared a member of the Dairyfield School Board in Bedford, New Hampshire, she declared this woman um, to be the executive director of a gay conversion center. Um, and so this woman's name is Shannon McKinley. She happens to be um, the, I think she's the secretary of the school board. Um, she also happens to be the executive director of a Christian organization called Cornerstone. What in the world is going on in uh, Dairyfield, New Hampshire? Well, it looks like a political hit uh, when it comes right down to it. Uh, there's a Facebook page that's coordinating efforts to try and get Shannon McGinley off of this uh, school board. And as it turns out, one of the people who's involved in that's the head of a Democratic Party in the state of New Hampshire. Another one is a, a former staffer for Pete Buttigieg. Uh, but then you see 
uh, as you say, Sarah Silverman mentioned this on her podcast because she went to the school. And uh, you know, this this is someone, Shannon McGinley, who's part of an organization, she says, does not uh, take care of uh, reparative therapy, which is, uh, by the way, not conversion therapy. Uh, reparative therapy, just very clearly for your listeners, uh, it does not involve trying to turn a gay person straight. Uh, very simply, if someone has unwanted same-sex attraction, oftentimes people who were uh, molested, uh, they they do their best to try and go through this so that they are no longer experiencing an unwanted sexual attraction. Uh, and uh, it has a, a higher uh, degree of uh, success than people realize. But uh, nonetheless, it's been considered virtually torturous by some people, uh, Sarah Silverman among them. And so this woman is the duly elected secretary, and you have people from Hollywood and uh, New York and, and uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, you know the various power centers around the world uh, in the political world bringing their power to bear to try and get her out of a school board. Uh, what's really going on here is very simple. They're trying to cleanse this area of, uh, of traditional Christian influence, uh, where you see uh, Democrats trying to get Republicans out of power, People realize that uh, the elites, and particularly when it comes uh, to these political issues, political powerful powerful political forces in the, the, the democratic world are not able to tell Christians to change their views. But the one thing they can do is make them shut up if they bring enough pressure to bear. And so they simply want to get her out of the school board, get her out of the way, and eventually the curriculum can be changed and young minds will, uh, will end up being indoctrinated in uh, the point of view that is being promoted by uh, this administration. I think that's ultimately what's going on here. Shannon McGinley has not done anything that's particularly odious or offensive. Uh, her views may not be the views of everyone, but she has every right to represent the people who elected her. And until they recall her, uh, she should be able to remain on the school board for as many elections as she can win. Okay, can we have a quick, I mean, super quick media um, media conversation about when you get a quote from someone and you're you're there, you're present, they've said something, you wrote it down. Do you have to like check with um, somebody on their staff before you can actually quote them as having said what they said? If you're in the Biden administration, yes. Uh, we just found this <laughs> Tell out. Tell people what we're talking about. This is bananas. This is so bananas. Yeah, so in, in uh, the Biden administration, if you, if you speak to someone who's uh, part of the administration, they will give you information on background, which is to say that you can include the information, but you can't quote the person, you can't include their name. If you want to include a name and, uh, rather than uh, an anonymous-sounding source that doesn't sound very trustworthy— then you, under their policy, you have to go to them and they have to approve the exact wording of the quotation. So if they said something that made them look bad, they can edit it. If they said something that gave away too much, they can change it. Uh, they can put their exact words into your piece uh, or you can't use it. So that's that's what we're talking about is really a, a sort of a, an over-the-top way of the administration editing the news that you read to make sure that it sounds more like PR than it does uh, journalism. And that's concerning when it comes to a democracy where people need to be able to hold people to account. And the most valuable, vital tool that we have for that is information. Yeah, this is like a, this is like talking points. We're only going to um, repeat particular talking points instead of actually having people share their thoughts on something or, frankly, the truth about something. That's what this – that's where this gets to me. Like, people aren't free to speak the truth. They're only free to speak the talking points. And if they don't speak the talking points, the administration is going to edit what they said before it's published. 
um, that is really, really, it's particularly troubling. And I hope that people who are reporting on media and what's happening um, keep this in the forefront of the conversation, because I think we want to be able to know that when we hear or see someone from the administration quoted as having said something, that that is actually what the person said and not a talking point from uh, the, the communications department of the White House, which is what we're hearing it's going to be. It's just so it's just such a mess and it's so troubling. Well, it says a lot about the message discipline that's expected as well. As you said, uh, you know, people are expected to speak the talking points. And uh, one of the things that does is tell you that uh, people who represent the administration are not free to speak on their own and that uh, the Biden administration is uh, tracking who is saying what and uh, extracting uh, the exact message that they want. If they don't get it, then you have the feeling that uh, there are penalties brought to bear for anyone who steps out of line. So it, it must be a really stultifying environment to work if you're an honest or, or creative person in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's just so many things. Okay, um, we have to leave it right there. Ben Johnson, as always, thank you so very much for joining us. You guys can find what Ben is writing these days at dailywire.com. We'll be right back. All right. We talked with Jimmy Cook a few weeks ago um, about Be the Change volunteers and his experiences around the world. And I wanted to bring him back on um, because a part of what he talks about is education and rethinking education and sort of at this stage of life, how each and every one of us have things that we need to unlearn and how we can learn new things um, from one another. And that sometimes those are the things that then lead us to a a passionate impact um, and open our eyes to possibilities that, you know, sort of our standard education didn't really lead us to imagine we could do. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When I was a kid, the music I liked drove my parents crazy. They couldn't understand why I liked what they called noise. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. You might not like the music your teen listens to either, but I meet a lot of parents who make a big deal out of a small issue. Even though you may not like a particular type of music, step back and take stock. Is the choice of music or whatever else you're dealing with today the thing that should fracture your relationship? It's amazing how your teen's taste will change over time. Before long, they might even like much the same music you do. So, make sure you're focusing on the majors, not the minors. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. What is your BHAG, that uh, big, hairy, audacious goal, that heart passion that God has placed within you, the thing that in the world that you want most not only to see changed, but to apply the full force of your life to bringing change um, in the midst of? Well, uh, for Jimmy Cook, whom we have talked with before, his book is Hand Delivered Hope, 
Um, for Jimmy Cook, it is education, which he describes as the most powerful weapon for change and peace the world will ever know. He's back today to uh, talk a little bit more about education. Jimmy, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, thanks so much for having me again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I, I thought of you when I, uh, you know, read and saw footage of just these devastating attacks that are happening um, in places like Afghanistan, where the death toll has now risen to 85 in the bombing of um, the girls' school in Afghanistan. Um, anytime that education is under attack around the world, I now, like, think of you and I think of the ways in which you um, have hand-delivered hope to so many people in so many places through education. So I want to talk with you about the importance of education um, your sort of new education that you received, you know, really from the Lord, but from the testimonies and lives of people around the world. So could that be our kind of our subject matter of conversation today? Absolutely. And uh, it's just one I love. And yeah, it's unfortunate that things like the tragedies we're seeing now, you know, wake you up to it even again. And it really, though, does inspire us to keep going because we've seen even situations like that be changed. Um, you know, certainly something like Rwanda, where, you know, maybe in terms of numbers, at least more devastating. Mm -hmm. And through the power of, of education, and through uh, the power of hope, you know, that country was able to change its whole outlook, its whole safety, its whole educational process, and really become now a haven of safety, where education is a priority. And, and, and the country can make progress not to mention individual lives and individual people that now just have a whole different outlook on life. So let's go back to Rwanda. Um, that's really where m much of this story begins. Um, what what was your experience there the very first time? And then maybe take us to the full circle uh, and take us back there 10 years later. Yeah, it was amazing. It was our first uh, education-focused development aid project, and we got connected to that from some women who had escaped the genocide and they escaped it because of education. They were actually in the U.S. because they pursued education with passion. And so, you know, their entire families killed in the genocide. And one of the ways, and you know, it's hard to use this term, but I think it's important to use this term, is it was one of the most efficient genocides in history. And one of the reasons was because they would bring people into schools and churches under the guise of safety, and then very efficiently mass murder them. And the school that we got connected to was one of those. So when 30 of us walked into that school, you know, with, with honestly a very naive perspective, even though we'd read, even though we'd prepared, a naive perspective of what really happened in that place. And externally, it, it started to um, become apparent because it would look like a war bunker. But then what really took your breath away was when we went in and we saw holes in the chalkboards at chest high of kids and realized that those were bullet holes. Mm. And here, where you're supposed to have this haven of safety, this haven of learning, uh, was just the opposite. And so with the people, with the local community members, the kids, the parents, the teachers, the grandparents – you know, in two weeks, we're able to rebuild and reclaim that school. And I say, you know, in the book, we were able to help them rewrite that the history of that school. 
um, and take that forward. And then to see what they did with it, we just we just flipped one switch, and they then took it forward and went from that destroyed um, environment to the best school in all of Rwanda, the highest grades that are there, kids going on to university, kids getting good jobs, which is the only thing that changes the poverty needle. It's just amazing to see that. And then to come back 10 years later, and what was cool about that is that there were um, kids that only knew that as history. Mm. So that's neat. I mean, they knew it. So we did, we don't want to forget that history, of course but they only knew it as history. But then those same kids that only knew that as history were the ones that were picking up bricks and now building a library and a conference center um, and moving the, the educational process forward. And they had the teachers that were committed, the parents that were committed because they knew now it was safe place to bring their kids to school. And so, yeah, in just 10 years time to see that come full circle in the way that you would hope and you would imagine and just to see it work. I mean, that's just beyond inspiring. And that, that really does keep us going. And it gives us hope for even something so tragic as, as what you're talking about is Afghanistan or the Middle East, where it does seem impossible. It does seem, you know, maybe there's no hope, but there really is. And again, I think the power of education and delivering that through a faith-based foundation, I think it can work. Jimmy, one of the things that I just, um, I really genuinely appreciate is, I mean, you're just kind of a regular guy. And yet, um, you're allowing God to open your heart and your eyes and your imagination um, and your network of relationships to genuinely impact um, a generational reality around the world. And I, um, I, I just, I long for more and more people to be inspired to see in their own hands and within their own reach the resources that are readily available, that God has already placed, um, you know, close by for us to use to advance his kingdom purposes in this generation. And you're doing that. And part of it, um, it, you know, in reading Hand Delivered Hope, it feels like you had to unlearn some things in order that you could learn some new things. So let's take a very brief break. When we come back, will you talk a little bit about thinking differently about education and the kind of education that you, um, you know, even after 26 years of formal schooling, like you still needed a different kind of education to be engaged by God in this work. Could we talk about that? Absolutely. That's so spot on. All right. Jimmy Cook and I will be right back. All right, if you want to read some stories of hope and uh, join a project or sign up for the newsletter, bethechangevolunteers.org, bethechangevolunteers.org, or you can just go to btcv, be the change volunteers, btcv. It all drives to the same place, bethechangevolunteers.org. Um, okay, so, Jimmy, let's talk about, uh, first of all, you know, you have 26 years of formal education here in the U.S. You're a smart guy. You're an accomplished guy. Um, we could talk about, you know, the fact that you serve as a professor and distinguished chair of orthopedic surgery at the University of Missouri. Like, you're no slouch. Um, you know, it's it's not like you needed something else to do. But now, 
um, God is using you in this really profoundly uh, magnificent way. Um, talk about what you had to unlearn and then talk about sort of the different kind of education that you got by meeting people around the world. Yeah, and that's why I love being on your show, Carmen, because you're so insightful and just the way you say things is so right. I mean, I I'm, honestly, I'm just a regular guy. And what I had to unlearn was that that 26 years of formal education was not what was going to directly help these people, these kids. And that was not going to take the development aid process forward. Um, I didn't have all the answers. And the first thing I needed to do or unlearn is that I had to listen and understand what the perspective was, what the needs were. You know, I, I didn't know what the needs were um, in a given location. The people do because it has to be culturally appropriate. It has to be directed toward an education and a job that will help the local community because that's what's going to change things. We don't want uh, to educate people to get them to leave the local community. We want them to, to be educated, to bring in jobs and advancement that help the local community, their family, their community, their village, you know, one step at a time. And so I think the other thing that really had a change in me was um, sympathy changing to empathy. And they sound pretty similar, but to me, they couldn't be more different um, because we've got to put ourselves in that perspective. And I think actually, again, just to show you that, that they were the ones that gave me the education. So the only reason we did that is because a bunch of desperately poor orphans in Zambia on a Habitat for Humanity bill told me the most important thing they needed was books and tuition. Those were the two words that changed our lives. And then the other one is an amazing woman Rwanda in uh, Cambodia, Rachana, who after we came back and had, had um, worked on her school, a floating village there, had come back and she had started her own little Be the Change her own support system for kids um, following in her footsteps afterwards. I said, Richana, you have so little, you know, why are you doing this? She said, because we cannot only see the world through our own eyes. And I mean, that still takes my breath away to this day, to be honest with you, because that's right. That's the cycle. That's the cycle that we want to start that works. And now she's then having that happen to kids, you know, in her village that makes it a local, sustainable, and advancing effect that is really what, what we hope for from the start. When you think about unlearning, um, my guess is there are assumptions that we make about people and the circumstances of their lives that uh, those assumptions turn out to be inaccurate. Can you tell us a story about maybe discovering uh, reality um, and it being contrary to something you had assumed going in? Yeah, there, there are so many of those. I probably, the one that comes most to mind is our, you know, son Pomoto, who we, who we lost um, five years ago. And, you know, I, I think we told this story a little bit last time, but, but it goes to that point is that here's this kid in the remotest part of South Africa. Um, and my assumption was because he literally lived in a mud hut. My assumption was, you know, his dreams would be small local dreams. And man, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, you know, here in the middle of South Africa, literally living in a mud hut, uh, building a school, digging a latrine at the time. And in the midst of our conversation, I said, well, what is your dream? And again, expected, 
you know, I would love to have a family and have my own farm. And he said, with passion, I want to be a photojournalist. I'm like, how do you even know what that is? And um, to, to, you know, take the story and, and make it short uh, in this time frame is that's what he did. He accomplished that big, hairy, audacious goal, that dream that I wouldn't expect would even be within his mindset. And he accomplished that and more and, you know, changed the world um, in his short time on this earth. And um, so, yeah, and we see that time and time again. And those are the things you, you're right. You cannot make those assumptions. And if you don't, if you let yourself be educated and you let yourself understand um, that that their dreams are every bit as big as any Americans you've ever met, um, you know, anyone around the world that you've ever met. And then you buy into that and you support that in a way you can. I mean, then the, the end result is just so amazing. And it, I always say it gives you more joy and and more um, satisfaction than yourself. I say, you know, I'm at the time in life where I, I love to see my kid hit the winning free throw rather than me. And that's the experience you get, um, you know, on these bills as well, too. You just see change happen over time and see the amazing things that they can accomplish with, the, with just a little spark of hope and a little bit of, of investment. When you talk about um, investment, I think that for a lot of people, they imagine that engaging in something like this, you know, like it, it costs a literal, literal fortune. Um, but there are there are ways to be engaged in um in hand-delivered hope and being the change that, you know, are not expensive in terms of material things. They're expensive in terms of my making um, an emotional and spiritual relational investment. That's what it feels like to me because my experiences globally have changed me. I feel confident more than they have changed the circumstances, the people um, with whom I have been privileged to engage. Um, you know, I, I think I shared with you before, but I mean, there is there is literally nothing more life transforming than being pitied by an African orphan like right. Mm. But but because I don't have children of my own, she just she she just views me as, you know, a, a, a woman who is not blessed in the ways that she understands God to give blessing. And so I just um uh, talk, talk with us, inspire people to engage where they are um, or around the world with what they have. Just give people the confidence that God's already placed within their reach the resources that they need if they would just be willing to open their hearts and minds to the possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And you can, you know, not just obviously in, in our organization, but you can get involved, you know, in those ways. I mean, so, so little um, can help so much. I would just say, you know, make sure you check out those organizations that it's going to on-ground missions. But, you know, literally that when we talk about, you know, $10 a month or advocacy and awareness, if you know, you can tell the stories of these people and get people to be involved that maybe do have more uh, material resources or are able to go, then you can be the catalyst for getting that going. So just awareness just ability to communicate, you know, these are people that are doing the right thing. Here's my investment by, by telling you about it and getting you connected to organizations where, you know, someone can go, I'll, I'll donate $10 to sponsor you to go on the trip or I'll donate $10 to get that to the scholarships and the funds that are really doing the work um, in a way that has impact and sustainability. So just, yeah, get involved, 
and check that out. And and I agree with you, Carmen, so much. The rewards to you will be a hundredfold of whatever time, talent, or treasure that you invest. Be the change volunteers dot org. Uh, the book is Hand Delivered Hope. Uh, Jimmy Cook is the author, along with Christy Cook um, and Grant Venable. Uh, Jimmy is spelled J-I-M-I, if you're Googling him. Uh, it's, it's a whole lot easier to find him if you spell his name correctly, because there's a lot of, you know, Jimmy Cooks by the standard spelling. So good job having a name that's easy to find. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll thank right? my mama. That's well. I hope that I hope that in this um, in this Mother's Day week, you are thanking your mama a lot. Definitely, most definitely. definitely. She, she's amazing. Hey, blessings upon you, Jimmy. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you for what you're doing at Be the Change. Volunteers would love for you guys to check out what is uh, what is happening with uh, Dr. Jimmy Cook and others. The website is bethechangevolunteers.org. We'll be right back. Maybe you have uh, a ministry about which you are passionate, a place that you are engaged somewhere around the world that God is using you and your resources to um, to bring hope, to hand deliver hope to others, to be the change. I'd love to hear that testimony. I'd love to hear that story. I'd love to know where you're connected and um, where God is using you. You can always text me. Uh, the number is 877-933-2484, or you could email me, carmen at myfaithradio.com. Uh, invite you to check out what's going on uh, at the website, myfaithradio.com. If you have never uh, taken the time to sort of prepare your own faith story so that you would be prepared, like Jimmy Cook is obviously prepared, to share his testimony, to be able to articulate um, preferably through like a narrative story, right? So here is the person I met. Here was the circumstance I was in. You know, for me, I was uh, sitting uh, in, on a bus uh, on my way to uh, a young life camp and Dan Fields was sitting next to me and I was, uh, my dad had just died uh, a couple of weeks earlier and I was uh, I was in a state of distress. And I, I mean, Dan was a senior, I was a sophomore and he just said, you know, what you need to do is ask God for peace. Like, He's good to give it. Like, this is how this works. You need to ask God that by the power, uh, you know, of Jesus in your life, that the Holy Spirit would bring you peace. And that's what I prayed. And peace came. Peace came in an overwhelming way. Um, It was later that week that I gave all of myself that I understood to all of Jesus that I understood. Um, And I've never looked back. I'm all in. Love to hear your testimony. Love to have you take the opportunity to put your faith story together. You can do so at MyFaithRadio.com. We've got resources there to help you do that. All right, we've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.